there's Bitcoin, and then there's crypto, and there's stablecoins. You can regulate stablecoins because obviously they're from a central issuer. You can regulate crypto because they're largely run by foundations and a business. But you can't regulate Bitcoin because Bitcoin is just information, nor should you regulate information. Because once you attempt to regulate information, then basically you need a surveillance state. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Hello, everybody. Absolutely delighted that you've chosen to stop by for another chat on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. This week, Josh and myself, Dan, were lucky to pick the brain of Samson Mao. Samson's pedigree and Bitcoin background is, shall we say, impressive. He may be best known for advancing nation-state Bitcoin adoption, and more specifically his work on El Salvador's Bitcoin strategy. He's currently the CEO of Jan3, a Bitcoin technology company with a mission to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization. He's also the CEO of game development studio Pixelmatic. Previously, he was the CSO at Bitcoin infrastructure company Blockstream, and prior to that, the COO of BTC China which at the time was one of the largest Bitcoin exchanges and mining pools in the world. This hour is loaded, and we cover topics with Samson including orange-pilling nation-states, commodity-backed stablecoins, the draconian nature of central bank digital currencies, his experiences through the block size wars, and an update on the volcano bond. You may have noticed on Twitter that we recently concluded our ad roll contest in conjunction with CoinKite. The winning submission came from Ryan will receive a free Block Clock Micro. Congrats, Ryan, and what follows is his submission. If this advertisement doesn't make you want to cozy up next to a Block Clock with a blanket and a coffee, beer, or glass of wine, I'm not sure what will. Some say that a paintbrush doesn't belong in an engineer's toolbox. Some say beauty isn't congruous with utility. We say that Bitcoin is as much a poem as it is a code, the Block Clock, brought to you by CoinKite, an elegant, timeless display for your Bitcoin value, a perfect conversation piece that belongs on your bookshelf, a contemporary take on historical information delivery. Sync any open dime, display market values in real time in fiat units or even satoshis. For the purest of Bitcoiners, available as Block Clock Mini and Block Clock Micro, for every space that deserves a reminder of the greatest currency to ever exist. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Samson Mao, welcome on, man. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Samson, just before we started recording, you were telling us about how Max Kaiser stepped in a giant pile of something smelly. Can you fill us in? I, I'm going to be completely honest. I've kind of not been paying attention to Twitter in the last couple of days, and I did hear a bit about this Tether gold stablecoin thing. Can you fill us in, our audience, about what did Max Kaiser step in and why is he getting canceled right now? Cyber hornets are out and about, it sounds like. Sure. So I think one of the guys uh, answered your question, what should you ask me? And the, one of the questions was Tether Gold. And I believe that was prompted by Max a couple days back. I saw it maybe yesterday or something like that. But he did. He did, He tweeted like, um, if you can't get Bitcoin, you should get Tether Gold or move to another jurisdiction, something along those lines. And I believe that was uh, triggering a lot of people because it looked like a it looked like a shill tweet. So people were questioning what he's going on about. That's my understanding. I don't know it much better than you guys. You know, it's funny. The, the, there's like a confluence of things because one of the questions we sent you dealt with commodity-backed stable coins and it had nothing to do with Kaiser. It actually, the origin was you on with Saifedean. Mm -hmm. You brought up the idea of commodity-backed stable coins and you and him went back and forth about a Tether Gold, namely. Yeah. The main thing that comes to mind and the root of my question was, I think as you're steel manning your Bitcoin position, one of the questions you ask is like, what sort of monetary technologies could threaten the discovery of digital scarcity? What has the potential to be transportable 
and have the velocity that the 21st century requires while still enabling scarcity. And one of the answers certainly could be a viable commodity-backed stablecoin. What are your thoughts in general on them? And in a way, is it the type of thing that could slow down or threaten Bitcoin adoption or, or offer a viable alternative? So I don't think um, a commodity-backed stablecoin would threaten Bitcoin. It would actually be better for Bitcoin. So on mm-hmm. the Safety pod and a couple other pods, I've talked about this concept before of commodity stables. But um, it comes down to what are we trading Bitcoin against? And does it make sense what we trade Bitcoin against? So right now, the most dominant pair in the world is USD BTC or BTC USD. So that is really like it goes to show we are in, we live in a dollar a petrodollar Bitcoin world, but we need to go back to trading value against value. So that would mm. be Bitcoin against commodities, and I believe a commodity based stable is the next evolution in that. And the most dominant one right now is Tether Gold. So mm. I'm, not, I'm not necessarily shilling Tether Gold, but that is the biggest one from the biggest stablecoin issuer right now. Yeah. And there are a number of others. I did an interview also on Kitco News, and you know their, their basically news channel evolved from Kitco, which deals in precious metals and whatnot. But they've also done their own um, commodity-backed stable. But of course, it's not very well known because they don't have the network effects that Tether does. So I was just going to say, it's interesting that this is kind of coming around again, because I know this isn't the first time that there's been the idea of having a cryptocurrency backed by gold. And that was, I mean, after I discovered Bitcoin in 2017, one of the first interesting things I discovered next was one of these, and I can't remember off the top of my head what it was, but it made a ton of sense to me because my background is I was a huge gold bug until I discovered Bitcoin. And melding those two worlds at that time in 2017 made a ton of sense to me. But I think what I've learned since then is that the centralization of any kind of commodity mm. is the problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. if you could turn gold digital and send it at the speed of light to Europe or China or somewhere else, then Bitcoin might have a problem. But the fact that you can't do that and you have to trust some entity to tell you, yeah, this gold exists and we verified it and you have to trust the auditors and all of that. Correct me if you disagree, but I don't really see how in the long term that has any real um, any real issue for Bitcoin. Like you mean as a challenger to Bitcoin, right? As a challenger, exactly. Yeah, definitely. I would say none of these things challenge Bitcoin, but they are things that facilitate hyper-Bitcoinization. So if you think about hyper-Bitcoinization, we can define it as the point at which we are all just sitting in Bitcoin and there's no need to trade back into dollars or even uh, a gold coin or whatever. Then that's that's the final state, right? We just use Bitcoin as money, it's global, and it's the universal currency. But to get there, there are going to be a number of things that have to happen. And one of those things is trading commodities for Bitcoin. So Mm -hmm. nation states and um, I think a lot of the global south, they are in the predicament they are in because they sell their precious metals and their oil reserves or whatever for fiat currencies. And if you look at Africa in large part, the uh, CFA franc is the reason why they're in poverty because the money supply is controlled by France and France uses that same money to buy their their valuable commodities. So in a way, they're looting the nation. So I think making that switch to a commodity Bitcoin trade is the way to go. And I think a natural evolution of that step is to have commodity-backed stables. And it, it also makes more sense in general too. If you're if you're trying to trade Bitcoin for something, you don't want to trade it for seashells. And in my view, fiat currencies are basically seashells. At least trade mm. it for gold, which is scarce. And I do have a level of respect for gold. That's why I can appreciate Bitcoin. At least that was my connection early on, that it is like gold-like, but better. But at least right. I think we all understand that gold is not going anywhere. It's had thousands of years of history, and it's very much entrenched in the the hierarchy of human uh, value of things on the planet, right? So yeah. I do think there's a place for it. And like you said, there are defects of it, right? Because it's not Bitcoin, the value is not native to the protocol itself. You have to wrap it somehow. But as we've seen from stable coins based on fiat currencies, there is a value to that. So somebody in Latin America can still derive some value from Tether. 
even though it's based off of a inflationary currency that people can print, right? They're still seeking something to anchor to from their own native currencies, which are inflating even more rapidly. So there's sort of a, a hierarchy of things that you want in the world. And the dollar right now, I would say, is just a unit of account and medium of exchange, right? But it is still the dominant unit of account and the dominant medium of exchange on the planet right now. So people are trying to seek refuge in that based on their devaluing currencies back home. So there, there, there is a way that we can use these things to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization. But there's, there's more to it than that. I don't know if you guys want to interject, but... I want it. That's exactly what I was going to ask you, which is, you sound like you have a view of the trajectory to hyper-Bitcoinization. So could you give us the high-level view of what you believe that is? So if you think these commodity-backed stablecoins could potentially be the next step, um, what is it you see potentially after that leading to hyper-Bitcoinization? And in one piece of background, Samson, before you jump in, we on this show often do describe stablecoins as like Bitcoin scaffolding. Like mm -hmm. you can't build a megastructure without scaffolding. And when you think about how many people are cut off from the banking system, how many people are in need of financial infrastructure, to presume that people in Venezuela aren't going to need access to US dollars is just naive. You're mm -hmm. probably living in the Western first world, right? Um, so we, we do have that conviction, even though we're as ardently... Bitcoin maxi as you can kind of get. We, we're realistic about that. Someone that's had a big impact on our view on that is Mauricio Di Bartolomeo from Ledin. We've had him on a couple times and kind of explaining that predicament, um, which I, I've heard you kind of hint at this tee off on Josh's question. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I believe that stable coins are a mid-step to hyper-Bitcoinization. So until they go away, having them on a blockchain and ideally on the liquid network, which is you know, a Bitcoin sidechain that does not have any shitcoins in it, it is the best case scenario that we have. Because as we're talking about, people do seek that dollar denominated value anywhere in the world. And to deny that is kind of a, it's a pipe dream, right? They're, they're, they're going to look for dollars no matter what we talk about and no matter how much we want them to take Bitcoin. It's just a fact of life right now, especially for merchants that have to pay suppliers in dollars, right? Like, like yeah. we, we can weather the volatility, but you know, someone else taking a 30% hit in profits or dollar profits is going to be in a bad place if they need to pay their suppliers and they're just just ecking by. But um, yeah, I think eventually they will go away. And like Paulo Arduino from Tether has said the same thing too. Like even though he is the CTO of Tether, the biggest stablecoin with, I don't know, 70 billion AUM, he also thinks that this is also going to go away because he believes in a Bitcoin future. So it's interesting to look at like, everyone's thinking and perspectives on this thing. A lot of us view it simply as a, a mechanism to get us where we're going to go. And having run an exchange in the past, I used to be the CEO of BTC China, you kind of understand any tool that you can give to people to help onboard them into Bitcoin is a good thing. Running an exchange, the most difficult part of the business is maintaining banking, actually. It's gotten a lot better now, but back in the early days of Bitcoin, like 20, I would say, yeah, basically from start until maybe 2017, that was probably a very difficult period for most exchanges to maintain their bank accounts and provide the ability to onboard people to Bitcoin. And I would say stablecoins have definitely had an impact on that, right? So in effect, you've externalized an exchange balance, tokenized it, and made it accessible and really easy for people to get. And that made it less less important to maintain that those banking relationships and bank accounts. And you can look at a number of crypto exchanges as being spawned from Tether, basically. Like Binance could not exist without stablecoins, right? They're built on top of Tether, effectively. Uh, same with a number of other exchanges that are crypto only at Genesis. But um, I would say that has made the banking sector react because they've kind of realized, though, People don't really need us anymore. So they've opened up and you've seen, you know, quote unquote, crypto friendly banks emerge. And I, I would say definitely stablecoins have prompted that. It's just pure market competition. They either have to offer services or they're just going to be obsolete because people will just use Tether. I'm actually going to read a quote of yours. This is from your Bitcoin magazine article, and it applies directly to what you just said. It goes as follows. If you want to onboard more people onto Bitcoin, you need to interface with their bank account. And for many in the developing world, their bank accounts are increasingly denominated in USDT. So essentially, this is the this is what you're saying of 
we talked about commodity-backed stablecoins, stablecoins in general. We could call them the gateway drug into Bitcoin, right? Like if you're into one, then you're going to see the value proposition of the true apex predator in the ecosystem, which is Bitcoin. Yeah. And I forget, I think Josh, you said it and then you piggybacked, Samson, is that even Tether Gold, which we're not talking shit about, the three of us agree there's probably certainly value in it because there's value in gold, but it's a second, it's an abstraction on top of the underlying, right? So who's controlling Tether Gold? Someone. Who's controlling base layer Bitcoin? No one. There's a big freaking difference there. And that's, I think, going to become increasingly apparent as people better understand Bitcoin as the years and decades trot on. Yeah. Yeah. It was interesting. I had a Twitter discussion with a, a guy. I think he's from Korea, but I think he was upset and asking, like, what do you think about Tether Gold? Because, you know, Max has now fallen from grace and he's no longer following <laughs> Max. And I kind of laid out what I, I think. And, you know, everything, everything that's not Bitcoin is imperfect. So he was saying, like, should BTC Maxis use Tether Gold? Well, BTC Maxis or anybody should use whatever they can to get Bitcoin whether it is a stable coin, whether it's Tether Gold, or whether it's working for somebody else or using electricity to mine Bitcoin. But everything has counterparty risk. Everything has some sort of risk to it, right? Like there's no perfect way to get Bitcoin without some sort of interaction with some third party. But once you're in Bitcoin, you're good. But before that stage, you have to do something. So if you're using Tether, of course, there is risk because you're using a product from a company. If you're uh, mining Bitcoin, you still have to invest and you have to host them somewhere and they may not be under your own lock and guard. If you're earning Bitcoin, which I guess is the most pure way, you still have to trust that the guy is going to pay you at the end of the day. So there's no, right. there's no perfect way to get Bitcoin. There is always some form of interaction with somebody else. And that means there's some risk to getting Bitcoin, right? Yeah. Along this path to hyper-Bitcoinization, I think inevitably we all see the fact that CBDCs are going to be a thing. I was wondering if you could give us some commentary about this here, uh, about this Nigerian central bank CBDC, the E-Naira. Uh, I thought it was interesting because I think they have the highest adoption rate of Bitcoin in the world right now in Nigeria. And the statistics I was reading was like 96% of people are using Bitcoin and it's a complete failure. This, this central bank digital currency they tried to prop up People just basically disregarded it and had a very good understanding of like what is good, solid, hard money and what isn't. Um, it's it's that's really cool to see that happening in a country um, that has been, you know, just plagued by currency problems for so long to see these people understand the value proposition that Bitcoin offers, even in the face of this new digital currency, which is the same thing that they've had time and time again in a paper version. They've understood that. Where do you see CBDCs kind of fitting in in the scope of hyper-Bitcoinization? <laughs> they don't. The, <laughs> yeah. I, I've said it time and time again. A CBDC is nothing new. We already have digital money. It's in your PayPal account, your Venmo account and whatnot. Yeah, except that it introduces entirely new control methods and you know, just ways for the state to reach its fingers into your pockets even more. And yeah. I think, I mean, the three of us agree that CBDCs are nothing new and they're, you know, much worse than the current position we have, which is at least you have some control over your money or there's an intermediary between the government and your money with your bank, hopefully. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that's all, you know, saying only not reality, but at least you're not, no one's actually controlling your bank account right now. Like they're not telling you what you can spend your money on, what you can't. And I think when people do get a real good view of exactly what that means, like in China, what they're dealing with right now, when your, you know, your COVID pass is now red and you're not allowed to spend money and you're locked in your house and you have no ability to control your own life because they have complete control over it. Yeah. Um, it's, uh, it's a shit show. Yeah. I, I think the best thing a CBDC is for is to allow a central bank to enforce monetary policy directly or directly at the user level, right? Negative interest rates, freezing accounts, um, incentivizing spending and velocity of money, and also surveillance, right? So none of these things that are good for them are good for the people. Um, but like we saw in Nigeria, it's interesting you brought that up. There's only 0.5% adoption of it. So you can see in a free market, nobody wants to use this. They can right. say it's convenient and it's good and it's safe and whatnot all they want. But at the end of the day, people want 
cash-like properties, whether it's Bitcoin or if it's uh, physical dollars, right? Or even mm-hmm. better still is like, I mean, not better, but uh, even better than a CBDC is PayPal or whatever. At least you're one level removed from the government, right? They need to like tell PayPal, freeze this account or tell a bank, freeze this account. But once you just remove all the checks and balances, you, you see that um, things can get dark pretty fast. Like in Canada, the government wanted to uh, freeze bank accounts that donated to the truckers, right? They at least had to go to the banks and say, you know, freeze uh, Dan's account. But if it's a central bank, then they don't even need to do that one step, right? You right. Just, there's just no recourse whatsoever. Um, but let's, let's, I want to also continue a bit more about um, commodity-backed stables. And it ties into CBDCs a bit. So I would say stablecoins issued by private companies are already doing the same thing as a CBDC, right? It's digital money, but they're better because there is a, a requirement on them to report and actually have the reserves, right? So mm. all, all the stablecoin yeah. issuers have to pub- publish attestations, and none of them can actually print out of thin air, or else you know, they'd be clamped down on pretty quickly. But you don't have that with a central bank. So th- that doesn't solve the problem of money printing. And the other thing about commodity stables is that they, would be su- they are su- subject to that same requirement where the issuer of, sta- of Tether Gold they have to produce attestations. They have to actually have the gold. But the key here is that I believe uh, commodity stable is a step up because they can promote physical delivery. So Tether Gold, they can deliver anywhere in Switzerland by mail. There's a big, strong gold culture in Switzerland. I don't know if you've been, but you know there's shops on the street that sell gold coins. But the idea of money and cash and gold is very much entrenched in their society. So I think physical delivery is really important because the traditional gold markets have kind of spiraled out of control. Darren Feinstein tweeted uh, a couple months ago that you probably have about 200 plus ounces of paper gold to one ounce of physical gold right now in the in the current markets. So I see commodity stables and things like Tether Gold as a solution to that because one, you have physical delivery and two, it is actually one-to-one. And the markets are actually better too. So if you're trading Tether Gold on you know, cryptocurrency exchanges, it is a 24-7 market and there's no stopping of trading. But you do have that on the traditional gold markets, like the London, the metals exchange in London, right? When nickel price was fluctuating, they said, you know, stop trading nickel. Just like when uh, Vitalik said, stop trading right. Ethereum or the Dow hack. But um, <laughs> you don't have that. So it's superior because it is audited it is reported and there are checks and balances and you have physical delivery and 24 seven trading. And one thing we don't want to get into with Bitcoin and we're, it's less of an issue for Bitcoin than it is for gold is that we don't want the paper Bitcoin markets to suppress the price of Bitcoin. And that is doable right now. Um, like if you have a, if you're trading Bitcoin, say on BitMEX, right? Someone tweeted this a while ago, I forgot who. But the, if, if you're trading on BitMEX, you have to, if you want to short Bitcoin, you have to at least deposit one Bitcoin. And then you can short it you know, with 10x leverage or whatever you're willing to risk. But at least you have to have one Bitcoin. But on dollar-backed derivatives markets, you could just short it indefinitely because paper money is infinite, especially if you're you know, the government. You can right. short Bitcoin as much as you want. There is no check and balance. So... Trading Bitcoin against dollars, it, it is the situation we have right now, but I don't think it's a good thing long term. It's better to trade Bitcoin against a commodity stable with some assurances. And with a private company, you're always going to have better assurances than with a central bank, simply because you know, they don't want these guys to go crazy. So they're going to monitor and regulate that very carefully. It's a great, great point. Uh, and to double back to another point I resonated with a lot from a second ago is that once you control the regulators or you are the regulator, right? We could say that that's true of CBDCs, right? Regulation comes from government agencies. Once money is completely, it's largely, but once it's completely controlled by government agencies, well, guess who's no longer beholden to regulation? 
right? And so that's the point you're making of like the advantage of regulatory beholden private companies managing this money. They have some form of accountability. Yeah. There's I- some form of attestation required. <laughs> There's a whole different level of, of darkness and obscurity yeah. Yeah. when the regulators are underneath the thumb of the money printer, you know? It's like yeah. the difference between going to the DMV where you know you have absolutely no recourse and you're going to be stuck there for three hours and they don't give a fuck. Like they're going to be an asshole to you. They're going to tell you you got to go back to your car for a check because you forgot it and you're back to the back of the line versus Chase Bank, which also sucks. But there is some semblance of customer service there. Like they're not going to completely bone you. They're going to give you a half bone at at Chase. It's just the the uh, anecdote that comes to mind thinking about how this would work in the end. But it's kind of ironic, right? You have the legacy system, which can basically do whatever they want. And then you have private companies you know, tokenizing things like dollars and gold, but they have a higher standard than the people that oversee them. Yeah, that's great. It's, yeah, it's ironic. Um, to shift gears a touch, we started with stable coins and, and all that because it's top of mind, but let's, let's, we want to get to where you're at currently at Jan 3. To do that, though, I think for those that aren't familiar in the audience, why don't you give us sort of the spark notes of your career trajectory and your Bitcoin trajectory and, and where it's led you to where you're at today. Sure. So I guess uh, I, I first read about Bitcoin in 2013, and I've seen it before that, but I really dug into it in 2013, uh, researching about how to mine Bitcoin. And then usually I give my start date in uh, the Bitcoin industry is late 2014, early 2015. That was around the time I started joining PTC China as an advisor, and then I became the COO. And I think a lot of people may not know, but BTC China was one of the biggest exchanges and mining pools back in the day. So after Mt. Gox exploded or imploded, everyone went to trade on BTC China. And we were also one of the biggest pool, the biggest pools in the market with about 18% of network hash rate. And that was actually quite important back then when all the miners were trying to say upgrade to, you know, Bitcoin Classic, Bitcoin XT, SegWit 2X, et cetera, et cetera. So then, okay, the walk us into then Blockstream transition and then from Blockstream to, to Jan 3. Sure. So after BTC China, I joined Blockstream. Um, it was towards the tail end of the, the scaling wars or block size wars, I guess. But I realized that there were some things that we need to build to uh, augment Bitcoin, to make Bitcoin more resilient. So a number of projects like... Uh, moving some mining out of China, which turned out to be a pretty good idea. So I helped Adam boot up the mining division at Blockstream, um, building things like the Blockstream Explorer, and then an evolution of that is the, the mempool.space explorer. But a number, it was a, there was a number of explorers in the past, and I think those were a big strategic risk to Bitcoin because they could mm-hmm. have just said, you know, Bcash is the real Bitcoin and serve yeah. up Bcash data. Like if you look at, all the major block explorers, they were all run by the big block companies. So Blockchain Info, um, BTC.com, which was controlled by Bitmain, um, and a number of others. But they were all basically on the big block side. And if they were really all in and wanted to use that as an attack mechanism, I think it would have been a very effective one. Because most people look at block explorers to derive what is the real Bitcoin chain, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, also, Blockstream was investing heavily in Lightning. I think they started uh, R&D on Lightning in 2015, so that was a big draw. And then I wanted to launch the Liquid Network too. Uh, that's a Bitcoin sidechain, and it also helps to make Bitcoin more accessible to the world. So yeah, that was largely why I, I was drawn to join Blockstream. I wanted to work on Bitcoin infrastructure and get a number of things launched to basically make Bitcoin uh, more resilient against attacks. Um, so I stayed at Blockstream for about five years. And then earlier this year, I decided to start a new company called Jan3. Um, and Jan3's goal is to get Bitcoin into the hands of more people around the world. Um, the mission is to accelerate hyper-Bitcoinization. So I want to focus on our wallet, which is Aqua. That's another project that was started at Blockstream, but it's a Bitcoin and stablecoin wallet. And basically try to get that into the hands of people around the world and specifically in Latin America, places that have a natural draw to stablecoins. I believe that Bitcoin wallets in general have lost a lot of ground to the shitcoin chains because they've Mm. all offered stablecoins from day one. 
whereas none of us in Bitcoin land have that. So that's one thing I want to change. So we do have Tether issued on Liquid. And basically the view I want to present is here's a Bitcoin wallet and here's a stablecoin and we'll let you receive deposits and send to other chains. So we've integrated SideShift to do that. So even if like someone wanted to pay you with Tron Tether, you can still receive it, but you'll keep your balance in Liquid. Same for like any Liquid asset. But if you want to send out, same thing, we'll shift it out again to pay someone in like, another chain. But the idea is that we want to kind of be a central hub for your asset storage. So you store your Bitcoin, you store your Liquid assets, but you can receive and send and interoperate with anything. Samson, if we could step back for one second, and the um, it's my understanding that you lived in China for 10 years, is that correct? Yeah. So I, I'm curious, so you've lived in Canada for the formative years of your life up until you moved to China. Could you give us a quick contrast comparison between living in the West versus living in China? And then during that 10-year period, did you see a noticeable shift in the CCP or how China was kind of run? Or did it seem like the CCP was clamping down more towards the end? I really just want to get your feel for what was it like living there and how different is it from living in the West in your experience? Well, it's very different. I mean, things happen very quickly in China. And I would say over the last probably five years after I left, China has changed a lot. Um, yeah. Back when I was in China, this was like 20... 2009, I think, when I was when I moved there, uh, China was in a rapid growth and development stage, and it was very much open open for business. And I think the 2009 and probably a few years preceding that were probably like the best years, um, and it was very capitalist. <laughs> but then things have changed a lot, especially with the the pandemic of late, and things have just gotten very darkened. I don't know if people want to live there. Like people are actually leaving now. Yeah, it's scary to see things like Jack Ma got disappeared for I don't know what was it, a month or two, and then reappeared and had his tune completely changed, and obviously had the shit scared out of him. Who knows, you know, what they did or what they told him, <laughs> but they yeah. obviously told me better shut your mouth and get in line, or you're going to get disappeared forever, or something. It's, it's scary stuff. Yeah, but you could kind of see things were going that direction with the crackdown on the exchanges. And this was back in probably 2016 was when we first started experiencing it. They were, I didn't think that they would actually shut down all the ma major exchanges because that that's probably their best way for them to to have like Bitcoin in China, right? Right. Um, Chinese people in general like hard assets. They like real estate, they like gold, and they like Bitcoin. And there's going to be people still trying to get Bitcoin. And the best way, if you want to maintain oversight of that, is to work with the big exchanges. And we already had all the KYC and AML policies in place, and we're collaborating with law enforcement. So you kind of had all the infrastructure already. And by shutting it down, you kind of pushed everything into peer-to-peer -peer markets and like local Bitcoin style type trades, which I would say is not as, not as clean as doing it with an exchange, if you're the government. But the, the writing was on the wall then. So they've cracked down a number of times, first on the exchanges and then on mining. So the China today is very different from back then. And I would say it's not as nice, not as nice to live in. Yeah, it's unfortunate. Did the mining migration surprise you? Like you talk about being surprised that they cracked down on exchanges. The draconian nature of the mining crackdown maybe even takes that up further. Did that surprise you? Do you view it as a massive miss? I mean, I'm sure you view it as a misstep on their end, but walk us through your perception of that. Well, I think I, I've tweeted like, there's no way they're going to shut down the exchanges. <laughs> and I was wrong, obviously. But um, once they did crack down on the exchanges, I, I knew mining was going to be the next one. Because what it comes down to is it's, a, it's all about capital controls, right? So China has capital controls. Uh, South Korea has capital controls. Uh, certain other countries have it too. If you want to maintain capital controls, you have to crack down on Bitcoin. So you can go one of two ways. Either you open up the economy and you acknowledge that Bitcoin is money, money is information, and there's no way to control it, or you crack down, like basically zero COVID policy. You're going to have to crack down, and you're going to have to crack down hard. And mining is effectively buying Bitcoin, but buying Bitcoin with electricity. So you can still bypass capital controls by mining, right? And mm -hmm. if they were going to crack down on exchanges, then the next logical step is to crack down on the mining too. 
That was wild, man. I mean, I know we're all used to it, but watching hash rate do what it did, it blew me away. I did not, especially with how many different times it felt like China was kind of bluffing, like, okay, we're going to do this and then they don't. We're going to do this and then they don't. That really blew me away. And I think at the end of the day, this is a, you know, going back a year, a really obvious statement, but really hardened my conviction in the resiliency of the network. Watching this thing recuperate and disperse and then just keep on humming and regrow was was truly mind-blowing. Yeah. All of these attacks are good for Bitcoin in the end because they show Bitcoin can recover from them. So it discourages these the same attack. You might get new ones, but at least the same attacks are not going to keep on happening. Like, I, But I don't think that they were trying to kill Bitcoin. They're trying to maintain their capital controls. So right. they got what they wanted, which is no more mining, at least a lot less mining. There's still mining going on, but it's going to be the miners that no one knows about, right? And it's kind of ironic. Like The miners that wanted to be compliant and register and pay taxes are the ones that got the boot. And the ones that were operating in the shadows are still going. Yeah, they're still so, rolling. <laughs> Badass. That's a good lesson, yeah. There's a ton of irony everywhere you look in the Bitcoin world. Yeah. There are some badasses mining Bitcoin in China right now. Props to you if yeah. any of you are listening. Speaking of resiliency, I want to talk about the block size war. Uh, you played a big-ass role, my friend. Thanks. We could uh, knight you a, a block size war hero on this show. Um, you really did. You were resilient under a lot of meaningful duress, especially going back, studying some of you know people calling for you to get booted and you being on the uh, the opposite side of most of all the power and big money in this space. Give us a, a quick rundown of what happened for somebody that maybe doesn't know and then kind of what that felt like and what role you, you played. Yeah, so this was a... Uh, well, basically, as you said, everybody, every crypto and Bitcoin company was trying to force this upgrade. So you had Bitmain, Coinbase, pretty much everybody. And uh, I was one of the only people at a big company that stood up and says, you know, this is not a good idea. And because we did have a lot of hash rate, BTC China had a very big outsized voice in the debate because we said we're we're going to go with SegWit. This is, uh, you know, the, the two megabyte in increase is not going to work and it's a bad idea for a number of reasons. And you're basically corrupting the protocol because you're changing the rules. So, yeah, but um, standing up against these guys <laughs> was uh, not easy yeah. because they were contacting um, Bobby, the CEO, and they were going directly to our investors like Lightspeed and other board members, like writing emails saying, this guy should be fired. And <laughs> what is your take on that, though? Do you think because I, I guess I could see either side because. Not that I would be a big blocker back at the time. I think I had no real idea of which side to take because I was so, so naive to the space. I was just like, oh, Bitcoin and Ethereum or, you know, cryptocurrencies. I didn't know shit back then. But what I'm asking is for some people that are more tech savvy, they read probably in January 2016 when the lightning paper came out, they probably had some better understanding of how the scaling happens off chain. Maybe uh, I think it would be pretty easy back in the day, back in 2017, if you were quite naive, even some of the people in positions of power probably didn't mm. realize, um, and this is just giving them some leeway, that, well, obviously, the most rational way for Bitcoin to scale is to make the blocks bigger, thereby more transactions go into each block, and that makes total logical sense. Yeah. If you didn't read all the forums back in 2014 and you didn't understand Lightning and you didn't understand how most protocols develop in layers, as we, I think most people in the space understand very, very well today. Do you yeah. think maybe your, um, your position was based in the fact that you're more tech savvy than most, or do you, do you accrue more maliciousness to the other side of the debate? It's probably a mix of both. There, there was definitely a malicious element there, but then a lot of the people didn't understand, like you're saying, a lot of things in Bitcoin are very counterintuitive, right? right. It makes sense. Like, okay, Absolutely. we want more transactions. Let's go bigger. But you're changing the consensus rules, and that's a bad thing. So I would say it's like 50-50. Probably some people had no idea, and they're just trying to you know, be nice guys. All right, let's go down. Let's let's roll call people down the list. Malicious <laughs> yeah. or stupid? We just, we just name, <laughs> name names, hundreds of names. Yeah, but I, I mean, I fell into that camp too. So originally, I think there was a probably... There's a piece on Bitcoin Magazine where I said, you know, uh, we should scale Bitcoin because 
fees going up are a bad thing right now or something like that. But then I talked to Adam back and he helped explain a lot of the, the counterintuitive points. So I'm not immune to it, right? Like I, at the outset, I thought, yeah, it makes sense. We should not have fees going so far up that we're going to limit the growth of Bitcoin. And you know that, that's why I can't really fault some of these guys. They probably just wanted to be helpful. But right. uh, you know, you're not being helpful if you're attacking and trying to corrupt the network. So it's a it's a mixed bag. Yeah, and it's also a manifestation of Bitcoin's low time preference. Like you you have you follow the incentives on a lot of these different organizations that supported a block size increase. The increase in throughput, the reduction of fees was, you know, directly equated to the expansion of their pocket based on the, you know, product they were providing. So in that sense, you you can understand their position. I think as as that war has concluded and more people understand the resiliency of the of the base layer, people are aware that we're not we're not playing a, a game that lasts a couple of years, five years. We're playing a decades or centuries long ball game and that base layer needs to be ironclad. And that means that some quote unquote innovation needs to be deferred or needs to happen slower, more carefully. Yeah. Which is very counterintuitive and it's part of the reason why so much of shitcoin land has put the cart in front of the horse. Like you can, you can, if you're, if you're being nice, you can understand that from like a venture capital standpoint, Bitcoin is slow. It doesn't break things. It's methodical and it's hard to, in some senses, it's hard to make money quickly on, you could say. Yeah. Harder to scam on if you're being more mean, you know? Yeah. But if you look at a lot of these guys, they're basically shitcoiners that were, into Bitcoin, like if you look at who yeah. was on the other side, the big blockers, most of them are just shitcoiners now. Like Brian Armstrong is the, probably the best example, right? Brian Armstrong, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, what they really want is something that is malleable and they can use to make money. They don't care if it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin or whatever. They just want something to get rich off quickly. So in a way, it was a, a good split, right? We kind of fought the battle out and they lost and then they went to shitcoinery and they're still doing it now. But if you look at how they're doing, I think it's, you can look at Brian Armstrong again as, as an example, right? Coinbase is not doing well. Like they missed the revenue targets. They're bleeding money like crazy. Um, I think another one is Jeremy Allaire, right? Like they, he went on to do uh, USDC, but at some point he said, you know, no one's going to use Bitcoin in 10 years, but yeah. I don't think they're doing that well either. They're also bleeding a lot of cash, but all yeah. these guys are not doing very well. In Coinbase's case, I don't know if you guys get the same intonation when you see Coinbase. I always think they've got the same brand as Facebook. Like it just, just on that, it just bothers me because everyone hates Facebook. So it's just automatically the hate just gets transferred to Coinbase. Maybe it's a good thing for all of us that Coinbase <laughs> looks a lot like Facebook. They've also done a lot of things that would make people hate them too. Like they, right. they acquired the company that did spyware and uh, there's tons of stuff they've done. Yeah. Yeah, they suck. I completely agree. Let's move on to nation state adoption here. I really want to talk to and pick your brain about this. And as far as we can reach into your brain about it, as far as you'll let us with what you know about who's uh, who's on the, on the edge of this uh, hook right now and who isn't. But how is this going? How I mean, you left Blockstream because you decided that nation state adoption was the most important thing that you could be working on right now. And I think we would all agree and we're glad we have someone of your caliber that's working on something that important. How is this being received by leaders that you're speaking to? And how is the IMF uh, leveraging those leaders against you is really a question I'd like to get to. Well, I haven't had any run-ins with the IMF yet, but <laughs> it's the the night is still young. They're coming. They haven't put a bag over your head and dragged you through a yeah yeah. When you get disappeared, we'll know who to look at. Yeah, yeah. I've said again and again. Like uh, for the record, I'm not suicidal or anything. I'm very happy with my life. All right, um, I'll put that on record. He's on the record here, yeah. folks. <laughs> um, but yeah, like nation state adoption is going to be slow and arduous. Um, we we do have some wins, so. Uh, Madeira is interested in adopting Bitcoin in their own way. And they've recently announced that the, they set up uh, an NGO called Free Madeira. And that's to advise the government on how to adopt Bitcoin and how to roll out more Bitcoin-related services and offerings in the region. Um, you have Lugano, a city, 
in Switzerland that is adopting Bitcoin. And there's potentially more, but there is also tell us, there are also tell headwinds are. too. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's the uh, no, I can't, I, I don't know, but we're engaged in a lot of different places. So we're talking to people in uh, Guatemala recently in the Plan B forum. Uh, one of the front front leading politicians that is running for president um, delivered an announcement um, during one of our panels there, but she didn't say the word Bitcoin, but Obviously, it's about Bitcoin. She knows about Bitcoin because she made a video for a, a Bitcoin conference. And um, we plan to meet with her probably in this month, in November. Um, I'm going down to Argentina for LepicConf, and we have a number of meetings lined up with some politicians there. But overall, I would say the, the, the goal is not to immediately orange pill them. It's going to be a process. But the goal is to be engaging with the politicians and try to get them understanding what Bitcoin is. How, how apprised are most of these politicians about what Bitcoin is versus what the rest of crypto is when you first meet them? Does it take a lot of coaxing to help them understand the difference or is there some <laughs> delineation in their mind before you start? Well, it depends. Like if there is a grassroots initiative in the region, the, there's a bigger chance that they've been exposed to the Bitcoin versus crypto argument uh, than if not. But I think it's just about keeping the doors open. So I, uh, I was in Scotland for the Bitcoin UK conference uh, last month. And um, I was on a panel with Dr. Lisa Cameron. She's heading up one of the kind of uh, government policy groups that's engaging uh, with Bitcoin and crypto. And basically, I was on stage with her in the panel and I explained the difference between Bitcoin and crypto. So a lot of things are <laughs> kind of like, we're, we're, we're doing it as we go. I, I don't think necessarily everyone has that understanding right out the bat, but either engaging with them or, you know, being at a conference with them, these are opportunities for us to kind of educate on the fly. Um, but it has to happen because the, there are so many forces trying to mix the two things together, right? Like there's, there are FUD campaigns launched by the shit coins like Ripple and their clean up the code campaign that was $5 billion bribing Greenpeace. But, um, yeah, there's just like tons of uh, crypto companies out there saying, you know, it's Bitcoin and crypto. We're best friends. Fucking and, Chris Larson. I forgot about yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they were, uh, Ripple was also in the UK at one of these uh, parliamentary hearings too. So we just have to be out there and engaging as much as possible and basically educating them as we go. It's funny hearing you talk about trying to orange pill nation states. It's it's so similar to orange pilling individuals and friends for the average Bitcoiner. Like you saying the phrase, keeping the door open. You know, I, I said to my wife this week, um, you know, it was Halloween. I was out drinking some beer and I, I'm, nor I'm normally quite quiet about Bitcoin around people I don't know well. I'm, I'm not a proselytist or a thumper outside this pod that much, but there is a neighbor I do care about a lot and he's a really smart dude. We talk about macro and finance and, and I, I kind of, peeled back the onion with him. And he's a, a, on, on a list of many people that show interest. You send him a couple resources, nothing comes back. And it's just a function of, we all have to remember how we entered the space. Like when the thing is shiny, most of us were drawn in at that moment. Once you've been in for a while, you forget your origin story. The point I'm making here is that these people will come back. You know, we've lived through one cycle where we were talking about it ad nauseum when the price was parabolic. Then it cut off for several years. And then all of a sudden, my phone started pinging when the price broke all time highs and was in the 40s, 50s, 60s, right? Same thing's going to happen again. And I'm sure the same thing is going to happen with nation states. Like, until these stories play out as a success, right? Like, what if eight years from now, the El Salvador move is just a smashing generational success, you're going to have a lot of people salivating. The game theory is going to start playing out then. It's not going to play out when the price is down 70%, which requires a lot of patience. But that's where yeah. you're putting the work and you're tilling the soil right now. The crops are probably going to grow in the future when more success stories ramp up and we start to really see that jurisdictional game theory start to play out. Yeah. Yeah. So... <laughs> I, I think the, the big takeaway was from China for myself, like if you're not engaging and educating the government and politicians, you run the risk of very bad policies and, you know, 
potential crackdowns down the road. But if you can educate people, and even better, if you can align the incentives of a nation state with Bitcoin, then we're all in a better place. So one of the understated things in El Salvador really is that they are mining Bitcoin. Um, a country is mining Bitcoin. And that's <laughs> I think that's a pretty good thing. NBD, yeah, it's, it's yeah. huge. If you look at the, the block size wars, you can you know that hash rate can be weaponized, right? So given that you know this is a, an attack vector, it's better that you have a lot of nation states mining Bitcoin and securing the network versus contemplating attacking the network or you know cracking down heavily. Because if they're in the Bitcoin ecosystem, if they're mining Bitcoin, they're securing the network and they have Bitcoin in their national treasury and they're accepting payments in Bitcoin and a lot of people there are using Bitcoin, then it's less likely they'll Turn turn on Bitcoin yep. like China and say you know get out and uh, you know no more Bitcoin for you guys. So it's sort of a, a defensive measure, I would say. The educational mission is sort of a, a, an attempt to you know secure Bitcoin from bad regulation and you know bad policy down the road, and engaging with the regulators as much as we can. Given that there's so much interference being done by the the shitcoiners, I think is very important. So engaging with Dr. Lisa Cameron in the UK, we can I, I kind of outlined it for her um, on the panel, which is there's Bitcoin, and then there's crypto, and there's stable coins. You can regulate stable coins because obviously they're from a central issuer. You can regulate crypto because they're largely run by foundations and people that are basically doing a business. But you can't regulate Bitcoin because Bitcoin is just information. Nor should you regulate information, because once you attempt to regulate information, then basically you need a surveillance state, right? Like you need to know, you need to monitor everyone's internet traffic. You need to see what people do. You have to like, I don't know, go into their homes and see if they have a Trezor, Ledger, or Bitbox wallet somewhere, right? And that just gets really dark. So yeah, it does. It's better to steer things in the right direction and being being exposed to them or them being exposed to me is a good thing. So I was sitting with Dr. Lisa Cameron backstage giving an interview um, uh, to a reporter and I was just kind of outlining my thinking on CBDCs and she overheard it and then afterwards she came in and said like, you know, what you just told him is the opposite of this uh, research paper that we had on CBDCs. So it's just uh, being out there in the field and engaging and maybe steering things in a better direction, at least I hope. Yeah. I think it absolutely is. And I think you're the right person to be doing it. Thanks. Um, the volcano bond situation in El Salvador, that's something that's been kind of ruminating for quite some time. Would you have an update on that situation or what? I, I know we, when you spoke to Saifedean, you said that, or one of the two of you said that there was going to be some law passed in El Salvador, maybe yeah. in the summertime uh, for digital, um, digital paper, basically, digital bonds. Uh, was that law passed, and what is the impediment uh, to the issuance of these bonds, as far as you know? Well, there's there's two parts to this question. So first, yes, there is a digital securities law that need they need to pass that would allow them to issue the volcano bond. Um, I think the holdup right now is that well, there is a number of holdups like uh, the war in Ukraine, um, and then energy prices, and then the gang violence, and right now. The president, I believe, is trying to finish uh, some pension reform, and then they'll get to the other laws. But it's not just the the digital security laws that people are waiting for. We're still waiting for the law that would establish the the jurisdiction of Bitcoin City and that special economic region, um, immigration reform, so people could get their PR. I know some people in El Salvador they've had to do um, visa runs out of the country because that law is not passed yet. So there's a lot of things that people are waiting for for El Salvador and the Bitcoin bond, the law that would enable the Bitcoin bonds is one of those things. Now, as it as for if they can do the Bitcoin bond, I think I would need to go back and re-evaluate the design because when I first designed it, it was last summer and the world has changed a lot since last mm. summer. I'm not sure the economics would work and I'm not sure all the design aspects would work. So the coupon was six and a half percent. But now, <laughs> based on the... I need to be current, a tad higher now. Yeah, uh, I was talking to Greg Foss about that. I was thinking 12%, he was thinking 14 but there needs to be some more analysis to be done. The world has just changed so much it's in crazy. between. It's yeah. yeah. It's wild <laughs> that the yield would... Uh, yeah, it's going to need to double. Like, it's crazy in a span of a y y less than a year. 
What yeah. was the number that they proposed for an investor being able to get a, a second passport to El, uh, from El Salvador? Do you remember? Uh, it was three Bitcoin and then... Yeah, maybe that would be changed too. But uh, the there's a lot of variables that we need to look at, right? So mining difficulty is at an all-time high now. Profitability is low too. Yeah, miners are just getting murdered right now. Man, yeah. man are they taking a bath. So there's a number of things we need to look at um, to reevaluate the, the overall structure of the bonds. But the concept still works. We just have to figure out the numbers and see if the numbers work. When that issuance does happen, I think I think that issuance, once other countries see that there's another alternative way to access money outside of the IMF and outside of the typical traditional ways that we get basically loan sharks financing yeah. us in order to take you know come back and take our real property, I think that is going to have a very real movement of the needle as far as nation state adoption is concerned, especially in the third world. So, yeah, yeah I think that's a huge deal when to get this thing off the ground for sure. Yeah, I think uh, I was really looking forward to, you know, finishing the bonds issuance and raise because then I can go to other places and say, look at El Salvador did this. Are you interested? But, uh, you know, we have to wait some time before that. I, I think the concept is worth having you explore more because although this the this specific issuance is, is not complete and there's a lot of moving parts, this idea that is enabled by Bitcoin on liquid, it's a huge, it has the potential to be an absolute, uh, to be a watershed moment in the way that a lot of nation states get access to capital. I mean, you talk about the way that a lot of these countries are under the thumb of the IMF, this being one of them, or the World Bank, this being one of the main ways that they procure capital. I sent this tweet earlier in the week and it said, if you're perpetually in debt to someone, they control you. IMF and World Bank essentially keep nations in perpetual debt, controlling them. Hence, El Salvador embarking on the Bitcoin volcano bond. They want sovereign sovereignty, mm-hmm. right? A lot of these quote unquote sovereign nation states don't have sovereignty. So let's zoom out on the concept of how this enables that from a lending and borrowing standpoint. And why, why is Bitcoin the thing that enables that? Well, I guess a, a key part of the bond's design was you share the Bitcoin upside after a five-year period. And after that five-year mark, you, by all means and measures, Bitcoin should be up a lot. So you would actually have a, a very high yield, higher than the 6%, 6.5% that we had originally, or if even if it's like up at 12 or 14, with a, a Bitcoin augmented yield, it could be you know, 50, 60%. Um, but this would be unheard of. And I think just Bitcoin's nature absorbing monetary value, it means it's highly likely that this would happen. And that would definitely, like you guys were saying earlier, kick off a a snowball or chain reaction where other countries want to adopt this instrument because it's now a way to pay off your debt, right? As you move into hyper-Bitcoinization, you want to be able to get rid of your debt and pay it off ideally. So... Doing the Bitcoin bond, having this Bitcoin in your treasury would allow you to do that. And I think that's a way out for a lot of these countries. And at the same time, you, you have a benefit too. So the, the concept of the Bitcoin bond is that there is a revenue generating activity. Right now, the design is for mining, but right. you could easily take that out and replace it with something else like, um, I don't know, mining precious metals for solar cell batteries or whatever. Um, car batteries, right? But there's a number of activities you could do that would enable you to pay off the coupon and keep that Bitcoin in your treasury. The way I understand this bond, or or I think what clicks for me here, and you can correct me if I'm off, but you need to procure the attention of people that want to lend, right? You're basically garnering the attention of a globally dispersed people with capital that have an interest in lending out that capital. And that's really only enabled long-term by a global distributed decentralized protocol that's garnering a lot of value, mm-hmm. of which there really is only one. But you kind of have to go back to like, where's the capital going to come from? And that's really, to me, what clicks about what makes this this asset class potentially so unique is that you have a cohort of people that hold this asset that maybe want yield in a different way or want to diversify in a different way. 
and you're able to get their attention to lend that money out, which is far easier said than done. Yeah, I, I think it's a mix of that. It's probably also people that are seeking yield, right? Fixed income is a, a big thing and people want low risk yield. Um, and I think the the structure of a Bitcoin bond is inherently low risk because you have this asset that is bound to appreciate over time, especially on long time frames, and then you have a revenue generating activity paired up with it. So I would say it's automatically far lower risk than the current bonds that are backed by absolutely nothing right now. <laughs> right, and if you absolutely. look at the market, we're seeing that happen, right? So we're due for a paradigm shift where people would just look at a you know a, a UK guilt or something and go, that's garbage. I don't want to buy that. I want to buy a Bitcoin bond that has a large chunk of Bitcoin behind it and some revenue generating activity that allows them to pay the coupon. Mm. Just hearing the name guilt, it, it makes me think it's some currency out of like Final <laughs> Fantasy VII or something. It doesn't <laughs> sound like a real security that somebody would buy. Yeah, well, well, let's talk about Infinite Fleet here. Sure. We'll close out with maybe some some video game talk because you've got a iron in that fire too. What What's up there? Yeah, so my background is actually game development um, pre-Bitcoin. Um, so when I joined when I joined BTC China, I actually had my game company Pixelmatic at the same time. Uh, we just happened to be in the same area in Shanghai. Uh, basically, there's a stadium, and we're kitty corner from each other. So what I ended up doing was moving Pixelmatic into the same office tower as BTC China, so I could just walk between the two offices as I ran both companies. But um, Pixelmatic is building this MMO game called Infinite Fleet. It's a sci-fi strategy game. Um, we're trying to do some innovative things on the Liquid Network. So uh, a lot of Bitcoins probably think NFTs are a dirty word, but we do have NFTs in the game. They're the spaceships. Um, and the game currency is also on Liquid. It's um, called INF and it's issued on the Liquid chain. And the reason for that is because we wanted players to be able to do atomic swaps. So if you're not familiar, an atomic swap is basically a, a trade that happens all at once or not at all. So what I'm aiming to solve is some pain points for gamers, not necessarily relevant for Bitcoiners, but for gamers, if you want to trade on a secondary market, or if you have a, the game currency that you want to sell, you basically have a lot of counterparty risk, right? You can either go to a website and then the seller will say, pay me in PayPal first, and then you can get you know, whatever or items or whatnot, right? But there's always that counterparty risk. But by putting everything on liquid, we kind of have fixed that so players can trade atomically. Um, when you earn the game currency, it uh, is actually sent to a liquid wallet that's built into the game client, not hmm. is not in a database. So it's a non-custodial cool. game currency. So we're trying to do some things with you know quote unquote blockchain tech, and I think there is room for bringing that to the gaming ecosystem because gamers are already familiar with digital items. They're already familiar with virtual currencies and whatnot. So it seems to be a natural step, and the the lore of the game. Is a very Bitcoin influence, so I'm trying to uh, you know, orange pill people very subtly through the lore of the game. So, INF is actually the Bitcoin of the game universe. It stands for Interplanetary Networked Finance Token, and that is uh, it's like basically the Bitcoin in the game world. And there's a number of other things too. The nation states in the game are called citadels, and they're based off of foundational law and consensus. So in order for, let's say, a citadel to go to war, you have to have a supermajority um, deciding we're going to do this. So there's a lot of Bitcoin things in the fabric of the game. And that's just to try to see if people will understand it. Because one of the deficiencies I find in sci-fi games is they hand wave away a lot of the governance and the economic systems, right? It's just, yeah, it's it just works. But I kind of wanted to dive it a bit deeper and build it up from you know, how Bitcoin would have impacted a civilization in the future. Damn. You guys ever think about maybe just every 24th frame, you just have a Bitcoin flash? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just subliminally, just like out of Fight Club? Just brainwash people, hypnotize them. Yeah. What yeah. Is it? That wasn't a dick I saw. No, that was a Bitcoin. <laughs> Good idea. I mean, just throwing it out there in case you guys are looking yeah. for any ideas. Take or leave the feedback, Samson. You know, just uh, just tossing <laughs> it out there. Yeah, I'll take it. Is there any other games that are considering using the same, um, the INF token as well? Like there could almost be like a circular economy between games using that same currency. 
Yeah, potentially. So Exordium is the the publisher of the game, and this is the vehicle that is fundraising too. So there's also a security token, also on Liquid too. So um, it's basically uh, a two of two um, token on Liquid that is controlled uh, with a whitelist. So accredited investors can trade it freely, and they can do it um, through um, a side swap too. So it's non custodial. But um, yeah, the that entity. The plan is that they would license other games, and the games that they license would also integrate, you know, the same tech, uh, the same liquid tech, and potentially that could boot up a cross-game ecosystem. Man, needless to say, Samson Mao is up to a lot of cool <laughs> shit. Um, this has been a blast. Give uh, our audience a handoff to to you in any capacity you prefer here, Samson, as we close. So I'm usually on Twitter. My handle is Excelion, E-X-C-E-L-L-I-O-N. Uh, if you're interested in Jan3, our Twitter handle is at Jan3com. And if you're interested in Infinite Fleet, it's just at Infinite Fleet. We'll check it out. I need to find a new game to play. Thanks, guys. Yeah, yeah. we really enjoyed it, Samson. Thanks for your time. Talk next time. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast. Yeah, 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 yeah.